Amen. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. You guys can have a seat, or you can stand while I preach. That's fine. We're changing things up a little bit today, jumping right into the message, because this is a really, really special Sunday. We get to install elders today. Oh, that's better than first service. That's good. You guys are excited. Okay. And I know that uh, our worship director, Aaron, and and Gabe won't say this, but uh, there is this level of creativity within the body of Jesus Christ, and that song that we just sang, they wrote. And so it's pretty exciting to be able to have words that are so biblical and specific from the Lord. So we are today continuing this Compelled Together series as we walk through the need and the how of discipleship. We want to be a church community that invests in people to see them become disciplined pupils of Jesus through relationship. The first tenet we talked about a few weeks ago was teaching. It was this idea of explaining what the goal of teaching is, which really is equipping or training people to be disciple makers, to help people put into practice what they are learning and the need for people to actually be teachable. I used a movie clip. Does anyone remember what the movie was? Karate Kid, thank you. The good one with Ralph Macchio and and Pat Morita. Yes, the good one. And I use Mr. Miyagi as the example of the second greatest discipler of all time. But at the end of the day, when we teach and proclaim, who we teach and proclaim is Jesus, his gospel, and the only message that we believe can actually change someone through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that week, I talked a little bit about our teaching team and how God has gifted us with different teachers within the body that we meet together and work through how to help the church understand God's word better, but also we're working on a thing called the process. We also call it from death to life to maturity. It is this goal and this hope to teach people what it means, not just theological foundational stuff, but also what does grace mean and how do we study the Bible? And so I have a teaching team that is helping lead this, which I'm very excited about. The following week, we studied accountability with the hope that we would understand that we're all in this together and we spur one another on towards obedience in Christ. Accountability is not just that we would sin less, but that we would pursue Christ more. And so that week, we got to let everyone know that community groups were starting, and community groups have started. And so if you want to get engaged in the community, talk with Pastor Mike and Karen Miller and others to find out what is going on and maybe where you could fit in. This week, we tackle what I would call as the third tenet of discipleship, which is life on life. What do you think when you hear life on life? For a lot of us, ideas of accountability or encouragement could come to mind, and both of those are definitely benefits of life on life, but what life on life produces more than anything is practical discipleship. It is teaching and equipping through, and this is an important word, so if you're taking notes, write this down, through quality time. It is your example that speaks louder than your words to those closest to you if you know it or not. Every parent knows eventually, that more is caught than taught. Sometimes we don't want our kids to be parrots, but they are, aren't they? Every once in a while, they'll quote something we said, and we're like, oh, don't use that right now, right? And children are sponges. So we can say something until we're blue in the face, but what is really going to be taught is what we live out in front of people. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to spend most of our time in Philippians chapter 3, but the verse will be up on the screen. Paul says to the church in Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul says this to a community of people that were pretty messed up. They were what I would call varsity sinners. The church was messed up. They were doing things that were unbelievable, but were found in Scripture. And there was a lot of drama, and a lot of the church had forgotten the gospel, and they had been misled by culture, which will pull you away from Christ. And Paul is speaking about his heart to see people come in contact and relationship with Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of their sins, and to be justified. That word's pretty important because we're going to use it a lot today. This idea of being justified means that you have right standing before God, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. So Paul then says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's this idea of emulating him. Emulating doesn't just mean to quote, but it means to actually do what someone does. So if you're following someone, you don't just quote them, you do what they do. Our example, hear me, is not in conflict with preaching the gospel It is conducive of preaching the gospel. Here's what I mean. There is this term or this quote that has been attributed to Francis of Assisi, who was a preacher, and a lot of people say that he said this. And here is the pithy saying. The pithy saying is, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use use words. Has anyone ever heard this? Yeah, decent amount of us. Okay, here's the thing. That's not biblical, and Francis didn't say that. Francis wrote some other things, and really what he said about 900 years ago, had to do more with our actions backing up our words. So I want us to understand in no way are we condoning preaching the gospel just through our actions. But our actions back up our message. Romans 10 verse 14, Paul actually says something that contradicts this idea that we can just preach the gospel by how we live. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, some people take this verse and interpret it stupidly, I guess is the word I could come up with, where they think that the whole goal is to be on the street corner and make people feel guilty. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about in relationship, we need to proclaim the good news and the gospel, and our actions matter, but the message needs to be communicated. God communicated his word and will to us through messed up people, through prophets, through kings, through shepherds, through doctors, through fishermen, through tent makers. We then, if the word has been implanted in our hearts, his word and his will, we get to then communicate those truths to our, you ready for this Greek word, oikos, not yogurt, right? Oikos is our extended household, Because how would people around us really know what's changing us, why we're growing to look more like Jesus, why we're more patient, loving, kind, things like this, unless we actually communicate the Christ who changed us? So we are imitating, we are following, we are emulating and mirroring Christ as we live and grow in our sanctification process. So today we're talking about justification, your right standing, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done. Your sanctification process, which is your spiritual growth, when we say to grow more into the likeness of Jesus, that means sanctification. 
And we're also going to talk about glorification. And the example of what Christ has done, what he said, what he does, how he's changing us, is the example that backs up the message that we proclaim when we have the same example. Our example speaks when our words aren't ready to be heard. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to get after it, all right? Philippians chapter 3. The church in Philippi, this letter is written to them by Paul, and it is a church that's under intense persecution. They've been going through trials, and they are being encouraged by Paul to find joy in Jesus no matter their circumstances. And we're going to pick up where Paul is showing the credentials of his former life. Think almost Al Bundy and the four touchdowns he scored in a high school football game. That's for like seven of us, but that makes sense to me. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in the middle of verse 4. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. What, what? I don't know why you would brag about that. No, I know why he bragged about that. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to, a law, to the law, a Pharisee, a top dog, a top teacher. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Come at me, bro. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul is bragging about his religiousness, his piety, and his keeping of the law that was better than most. He was saying, hey, my former life, I was the best at it. I was the Michael Jordan of religiousness. He, before Christ, was like the best adult video game player ever. Takes effort, but it doesn't actually benefit reality. Just saying. Sorry, Smash Brothers. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. If we translated that word, you would probably leave if I said it from the pulpit that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but hear this, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul then denounces all that he had gained by being the top religious dog, and in contrast, he sees only the worth that he has attained through Christ and God's free gift of salvation. Let me say this. We are saved by works. Christ's work on the cross and through the resurrection, his perfect life lived, his propitiation, that's a word I'm sure you all use this week, him giving us his right standing. And so Paul is making very clear all the religiousness he did at first, even though he was the best at it, it was in vain. Verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Paul says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's yearning to know Christ better comes from his understanding that his justification his right standing before God, the goodness, the fact that he can identify himself with Christ was all because of Christ and not because of him. 
So he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to be more like Jesus. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If you're a Christian in this place today, you need to know that Christ has taken hold of you and he loves you and he's for you, but he's not going to let you stay where you are. And he's going to change you and sanctify you. And Paul understood his justification was through Christ alone, but his sanctification, his growing into Christ's likeness, his spiritual growth was continual and ongoing. The goal of one day receiving his glorification Here's a good example of glorification. To have your sin completely removed and his relationship with Christ to no longer be stunted because of his and our sin nature. Paul, the apostle, the one who had done everything right in a religious sense, the one who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul was relentless in his pursuit of Christ and his sanctification process. Why? Because God had changed him and transformed him and no longer were his works in vain, but he was doing the works that God had predetermined for him to do, that he would walk in them. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, he's speaking to the church, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, this glorification, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Preacher voice wants to come out of me in this text. These words are powerful. They are motivating. And we must realize that the goal is not, are you ready to hear this? Because this is going to be in contrast in, in what a lot of you have heard. So I might get an email or two. The goal is not to just be justified. Do you hear me? You have already have, you already have been justified if you put your faith and trust in Christ alone. You've been justified, so it's not like you just get to chill until he comes back. We treat being saved, if you will, like the finish line, when it's really just the gun going off to start the race. Paul says he forgets what is behind. He no longer justifies himself by what he's done in the past or what he used to do or who he used to be. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature, underline that word, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. This is an interesting verse. It's kind of the language, even in NIV, ESV, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really flow that well. Mature can also be translated to perfect. Not perfect in the sense that you have no more sin in your life, but perfect in the sense that before God's eyes, you are made perfect because of what Christ has done and his gift given over to you because Christ defeated sin. His righteousness given to you is what he's talking about. And we are made perfect in God's eyes, even though in this earthly body, we struggle, we fail, we run back to, here's a theological term, the old man. The old man is the thing that you pull along after you've been justified by Christ. You're pulling along this old man, this old dead man, you're pulling them with you because you keep going back to the things that you used to do, or maybe that's just me. 
So what Paul is effectively saying, if you really want to translate this verse, it's, it's kind of hard to understand. If we are mature, the only way that that is exemplified is by realizing that we're not mature. See what he did there? Those who think that they've arrived have not, and those who know that they haven't have. Whoa. One of the best things for me in the job that I get to do, the ministry that I get to have, the, the vocation that I'm a part of, is I get to invest in people. I get to sit down on my incredibly comfortable couches, what, what? And I get to open the word of God with individuals, and I get to teach them about who Jesus is. And it's a mirror for me. It's a mirror for me to see where I've been. It's a mirror for me to see where I'm at. It's even a mirror sometimes for me to see where I'm going. And let's just be real. You guys want me to be real, right? There's eight of you. Nothing frustrates me more than when I see someone being prideful and making this faith about them, about what they can accomplish, about what they've done for Jesus as if Jesus is lucky to have them. Now, let me explain why. Because I am the best at doing this. I'm even prideful in my lack of humility, y'all. I am so good at being prideful and making this faith about me. I've said it many times, when I make much of Jesus, others make much of me, and let's just be real, I like that. And I have this constant struggle of being prideful and not making it about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, but somehow, you know, oh no, oh no. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous when you think about what Christianity is based on. It's ridiculous when you think of the cornerstone of our faith. We believe that our justification was completely done by God. Our right standing before God, our righteousness, our salvation of our souls is solely a gift from God through his intervention, through his heavy lifting. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become righteous before God. We know theologically that God did it all. And yet for some reason, we or I, act holier than thou, as if I earned something. It's ridiculous, but it's a reality of our fallen nature. And God gives us his ideal. He gives us his word. He gives us his law. He tells us how not to get dead. And what do we do? We get dead. We reject it. And yet God decides in his vast mercy to create trophies of grace to save sinners like you and me, to bring us into right relationship with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of the glorious grace of our God. So if we're influencing others, church, please, please don't try to impress on them your goodness. Impress upon them God's goodness from his word. That's what I yearn to see in this community a people who outdo one another in honor for one another and for God, rather than biting for attention to be placed upon us. Verse 16, let us live up to what we have already attained. God's intervention creates an example in those who know him to show him off. 
When God intervenes, all of a sudden there's this need in us to want to show him off if we truly know him. So Paul is saying, just paraphrase, if we are redeemed, if the Holy Spirit resides in us, if we've been changed by the glory of God because God has intervened, if we have been redeemed, live like it. That's what Paul's saying. Your justification has been bought for you. It was given to you. You did nothing in order to earn it, so stop trying to pay God back for something he gave to you as a gift. Verse 17, join in together, or join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. There's some great words here. Example, underline that, model, and live as we do. Paul uses imitating language here. Follow our example. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And here's the truth, and some of you are in this room. I am so grateful for the men and women that I have been able to learn from and do life with. Mary Ann's one of them. Mike's one of them. Kevin's one of them. And there are many others within this context that I have gotten to learn from by spending time with and seeing God do work in their souls to encourage me with grace. And here's the thing, the ones I just said, they're all older than me, sorry, spoiler. Uh, And they're much more mature than I am. But I've also been encouraged by peers people that are in a similar place that I am, my co-laborers at other churches who are pastors, my elders that we're going to be installing later today, the, the people that I get to do life with. But you know who else I've learned from? Those who are younger and fresher in the faith. You like how I always say seasoned when you're older, and so I say fresh when you're young, right? Fresher in their faith. You, you guys, if you've been here a while, you know some of them. Gabe's a good one. He ain't going to look up right now. Malik's another one. We've seen these young people. Laura has grown so much in the past few years. We have seen these people grow to care more about who God is and to actually point people towards Christ. And there, and this doesn't mean you guys have to share takeaways. That's not why I'm doing this. But what's so cool about what we get to experience from them is they see things in a way that those of us who have been following Jesus a lot longer, we're jaded. Can we just be real? Just me, you liars. We're jaded. We hear the truth over and over, and very subtly we ignore it. Very subtly we go, that doesn't apply to me. And then our heart hardens just a little bit more. And so we can learn from those that have come after us. We can learn from those that are younger than us, but we can also invest in them. Uh, Real talk, I'll start now. You ready, real talk? I have not done a good job lately of investing in my children one-on-one, okay? Just real talk. I'm sure I'm terrible at it and you're all perfect, but I have not been doing a very good job lately. And one of the things that I noticed the other week, Lorelai, my second oldest, she walks up to me and she goes, Daddy, when can we study the Bible? When can we go to Pete's? I was like, well, I'm not going to Pete's, but you can come sit on my comfy couches. And so I put on my calendar... Lorelai, pick her up from school, and I picked her up. We went and got a treat. We came back to my office. We opened the Word of God, and we started in Genesis. If you want to know if you're a good teacher, if you want to know how to teach the Word of God, try teaching a 10-year-old, y'all. Oh, my gosh. The analogies you have to use, you can't be like, well, we were justified through the propitiation of Christ's atonement. You can't say that. 
You have to use these grandioso explanations. You have to like draw pictures. You have to, my whiteboards were used. I was very happy. <laughs> and here's where I, here's why I share that. Because what I totally forgot was not the benefit that it does for my kids when I spend time with them one-on-one, -on -one, but the benefit it does for me. And also, I need to set an example for this church as one of the shepherds. I want you, hear me, I want you to love Jesus. I want you to chase after him. I want you to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I'm going to be real right now, and some of, the, some of you might get offended by this. I don't care. I want your kids to love Jesus even more. Here's why. Because your kids get you as an example. And I believe that by investing and encouraging people not to just read the word and just, you know, I do this all the time, but oh, right? Like, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to actually read it and put it into practice. By you doing that, you have this, especially for those of you who have young children, you have children that can't really get away from you, so they have to study with you, <laughs> right? Like the ones that are far away, you have to call and maybe they don't want to talk to you, but that's fine. I just want to tell you, though, that we get to be an example. Those of you who are yet to be married, yet to have children, you get to be an example to your future children. You get to be an example to your peers. You get to be an example to some of us that are a little bit more mature. One of the things that I've heard over and over and over and over from people that start to attend this church, and it's funny, just so you know, there's this like, the more you're engaged in this church, the more you start to move up. Just, I'm telling you that right now, okay? You just start to sit closer, just saying. But what's so cool about those that are just kicking around the tires of the church is they've seen young people worship Jesus. And it's the most evangelistic thing they've ever seen. It is so encouraging to see young people not making it about their Snapchat or their Facebook or their whatever, but they're making it about King Jesus King. All right, that was all free. Paul knows he's not perfect. He knows he's not perfect like Christ, but he also knows that people tend to not, be, not to be able to understand a God that they can't physically see. The human capability is not to see the Spirit of God moving, but they can see the effects of the Spirit of God moving. Last week, Kevin taught on a very simple fact that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, in redemptive relationships, through people, God's people, creates multiplying transformation. If we are being transformed, God starts to multiply transformation. This pattern of God's spirit, his word, and his people, God does things, God intervenes, and the active ingredient is always God. He's the hero of the story. He's the hero of your story if you've come into contact with God. So Paul was a man who was dependent upon Jesus, being found in him, finding his identity in Christ. We've talked before about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and it sounds kind of egotistical, like, hey, hey, he loves me. But he found his identity in the fact that Christ loved him. And Paul was understanding that his identity was because it was not based on what he had done in the past, it was based on what Christ had done for him. So let's just be real. We all tend to have a bit of an identity crisis. Even in the church, we tend to find our identity in what we do 
or what we've done or in our sexuality or in our jobs or in our spouse or in our significant other or our child or our grandchild and we place such significance on someone who can never hold the weight of what our identity weighs. You picking up what I'm putting down? Jesus did not come just to forgive your sins. He came to be the one that you place your identity in. That kind of rhymed. Jesus didn't just come to forgive your sins. He came to be the one you place your identity in. Verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, so this may hurt a little bit. Paul is being real. He is being stricken by the fact that people are perishing without Christ, that they can't really see God for who God is. Paul's being vulnerable. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's telling them how he feels about this. He's crying. It is not attractive for like a grown man to ugly cry. I'm just saying. And Paul with tears is challenging this church. He's being vulnerable. Here's the thing. Being vulnerable is your most accessible teaching tool. It is the most accessible teaching tool you'll ever have. Be yourself. I was always told, be yourself. Ain't nobody else going to be you, I guess. But being vulnerable is the most accessible teaching tool you'll ever have. Listen, if you want to disciple someone, you want to take your life and invest it in someone else, if you want to do that, here, I'm going to give you some uh, explanation of what you ought to do. First, be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. Okay, now in contrast, here we go. If you want to be discipled, you ready? This is going to be crazy. You've never heard this before. You ready? If you want to be discipled, be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. One of the main reasons we struggle with community, we struggle with accountability, we struggle with discipleship, we struggle with growing more in the likeness of Jesus is because we're unwilling to be vulnerable. I get to be a part of this Bible study with some other guys that are all married and, and they either have kids or are about to have kids. And we get to be really open really quick. And it is one of the most blessed times of my month is to see men being real. So you want to be a better teacher? You want to disciple someone? Be vulnerable. You need to be who you are. We don't teach someone who we aren't. We don't try to be someone we're not because we don't want to make people who we aren't either. You picking up what I'm putting down? And Paul is not only expressing the fact that many live in contrast to the gospel, to the good news of what Christ has done, that they are against God's grace. He has heartache for those who are enemies against the cross. And then he says this, this is rough, this is harsh, but it's biblical. He says their destiny is destruction. Their God, lowercase g, is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Those who are enemies of the cross are in real time headed towards an eternity without peace, without what the Old Testament teaches as peace, which is shalom. 
And that comes out in how they live and what they do. They have no peace because they are an enemy of the cross. Um, people are not that creative. Did you guys know that? Like, we're just not that creative, except for when we attempt to lie. Then we get super creative, don't we? We are really creative when we attempt to lie. We lie to others. We lie to God. And the person we lie to the most, honestly, is probably ourselves. And we think if we can fake others or even ourselves out, then then we really believe something. What you talk about most, what you think about most, what you give of your time, treasure, and talents to most is probably what you worship most. And we have a jealous God. I don't think I'm wrong in saying that. I think I'm being biblical. We have a jealous God who, if he has bought your freedom, if you have come into relationship with Christ because of what Jesus has done, not because you come to church, not because you're Christianized, this, this country's too Christianized. I wish we were more about following Jesus. Ooh, sorry, that was almost political. My bad. If we have been freed from the tyranny of our sin, if God has bought our freedom from sin, he doesn't want you to continue to act as if you're enslaved. Paul is teaching the difference and the effect of what someone who isn't for God really is. Here it is. You ready? You're against him. You don't like him. You either bow down to him and you love him because of his kindness and his grace, or you really hate him. So here's something I'm going to say, and it's going to offend probably all of us because we've all done it, but I believe I have a biblical mandate to say this. Morality that is intended to justify is an enemy of God's grace. So don't try to clean yourself up, y'all. It doesn't work. You'll never be clean enough. It is only through Christ coming with his blood to wash away your sin that you can be made pure. It is only through that. So don't say you're a Christian and point to the good stuff you've done. Don't point to the stuff you intend to do. Point to the cross Point to the resurrection. Point to the Jesus that you know and you love and say, I'm with him. That's what it means to be justified. And if you can't really say that with both your mind or with your mind, your heart, and your lifestyle, it may just be because you don't find your identity in Christ. And you look for it in something else. And hear me, that something else will never, ever satisfy. Verse 20. But our citizenship, oh, this is some good news, y'all. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, you want to know my end times understanding? You guys ready? You're all listening now, right? <laughs> Here we go. I am sure Jesus is coming back sooner today than ever. There you go. Think about it. It's going to make sense in a second. Our citizenship is in heaven. We find, if we've found our identity in Christ, we are no longer defined by our sin. You see that? We are no longer defined by our stomachs. We are living examples of grace and truth, and our final destination is not 
here in our perishable bodies with our decaying lives. It's not of this world, but we are here as citizens of the kingdom of God to bring others into the kingdom through God's work, through our words and our examples. Ooh, that's good news. Verse 21, who, he's talking about Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, (laughs) will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The past three weeks now, I've just had to deal with too much death. You ever been in that season? I was, uh, went to a funeral of a young man who I knew when he was in high school and I mentored him. He was 25 and he had taken his own life and there was an open casket. I don't think I was ready for that. I performed a 99 and a half year old's funeral here on the campus a few weeks ago performed a dear friend's father's funeral. And it was hard. It was hard to be around death. But here's what I want to remind you of if you are a Christian. If you've committed your life to Jesus, death does not have final say. Hallelujah. Paul says his spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit who makes us holy, who resides in those who have repented of their sin. They, we, we are headed towards glorification. Glorification is the net result of your justification and your sanctification. You are being made right with God and you're growing to look more like Jesus. But guess when you get to be glorified? When you're done breathing here or when he comes back. That is the goal that Paul is speaking about in this race. And when the glory of God comes back in Jesus Christ's second coming within a twinkling of an eye, our glorification, our perishable bodies will become imperishable. And because our sin will be completely removed from us, we will no longer have a stunted relationship with God. We're all headed towards this. If we've been justified and we are being sanctified, there will Come a day when Christ comes back and we have finished the race and we no longer have the weight of sin to carry along with us. But our examples to others is so important and necessary to our discipling of others. So let me take you to a verse. A lot of us have quoted it. A lot of us use it. In fact, it's on a ton of coffee cups. You ready? Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron... So one person sharpens another. Oh, that's wise. That's good. We love this verse. We are so used to talking about it in fellowship and in discipleship and in Christian relationships. But what I want to point out about iron sharpening iron is this. It's violent. It's loud. It's attention getting. And if we are to be more sharp and intentional in our pursuit of Christ, we need other relationships to help us walk in the way of the Spirit of God. We need to do life on life. We need honest voices. We need people that are farther ahead than we are to let us know of what we potentially may be up against in the future. The men and women that I spend time with, they are encouragers. They often are mentors, and if anything, they know me better than people that have only heard me talk once or twice. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. 
whatever you have learned, Paul says, or received, or heard from me, or seen in me. You see it? Write a note about it. Nah, that's not what he says. He says, put it into practice. Do something with it. Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you and also with you. What does he say? He says, if you do this, if you put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We have spent so much time taking notes. We've spent so much time going to studies. We've spent so much time talking about what we ought to do when Christianity is not an armchair quarterback sport, y'all. It's about putting it into practice and doing something with what God has convicted you of. If we are redeemed by Christ's work on the cross and through the resurrection, and we live in a world that is full of those who want to self-justify, don't we need to go and rub off on this world while we still have a chance? If Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all people, we must exude the imitating nature of Christ as we live out loud because we are with him. Let's pray.